The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Today we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. And throughout this series, we've been looking at the words the Apostle Paul writes to this church that help, help us understand what God says about who we are. See, in Ephesians, Paul answers the question, who are you? And so what he does is he unpacks it in each chapter over and over and over again what, what God says about who we are. And the way Paul talks about our identity is interesting because it's different than the way that you and I often will think about who we are. See, what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't attach our identity to the words that people say about us. He doesn't attach it to our our life experiences. He doesn't attach it to the quality of our relationships or the work we do, the responsibilities we have. Instead, Paul attaches our identity that the foundation of who we are is something other than ourselves. It's something other than, than the people in our lives, the experience we have. It's something entirely outside of us that we can't change. That our identity is the person in, tied to the person and work of Jesus. That our identity is secured in who Christ says we are. Which means, means our identity cannot be shaken. Because when our identity is attached to these other things, when those things change, so also does our worth. But when our identity is attached to Jesus and his work, no one can change that. And so through the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is essentially answering that question over and over again for us. He's, he's holding up our identity in Christ and looking at it from different angles to say, all right, who, who are you? In Ephesians 1, he answers that question by saying, you are chosen. That beforehand, God chose you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. And so your identity is, 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 is founded in the choice of God saying that you are one of his chosen people. In chapter 2, he says about us, he says, you are saved. Right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And while you were dead, Christ intervened. He rescued you. And so your identity is not in the fact that you changed that situation, but in the fact that Jesus saved you. You are saved. That's who you are. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 3, and we're reminded that God knows more. He cares more. He loves more than we could ever imagine. And this God who knows more and cares more and loves more, in Ephesians 3, Paul describes this relationship we have as a God that we can pray to. And so Paul gives us an identity. It says, you, you are heard. That you are heard by God. That, that is the position you have with God, that you can speak your request. And God cares, he knows, he hears you. That's who you are, and nothing that you do will change that. Today we're going to go into Ephesians chapter 4. If you could turn in your Bibles, it's on page 1,821. See, it seems like in our world, things today are more divided than they've ever been. But you can look around the world, you can look around conversations that you might have with neighbors or coworkers. you can turn on the news, you can go online, and it doesn't take much effort for us to see that things in our world are divided. In fact, I would suggest that we could take any issue, and in a matter of moments, if we really pressed, it could become a divisive issue. 
Right? That's just the nature of the world we live in, that, that people tend to find themselves more and more polarized than ever before. That people move quickly into their camps and, and build up dividing walls. See, see, when I look at the world, and maybe this is just me being, be, becoming more cynical as I, as I get older, but, but when I look at the world, what I don't see is I don't see people becoming more loving. I don't, I don't see people be, becoming more and more willing to listen to one another. More willing to work out issues. To listen, to care, to sit. Now what I do see is people are very good at loving people who are like them. See, we, we are great at that. If, if the person looks like us, if the person talks like us, if the person has the, shares the same values as us, even if the person sins with the same kind of sins that we do, then we're good with loving those people. But the moment their values are different, the moment they look different, speak different, struggle with something different than we do, then all of a sudden we are very good at saying, all right, well, I can love these people, but I don't know if I can love those people. See, in our world, we are very good at loving people who are just like us. But the moment somebody isn't like us, we resort to division. They're saying it's them over there and it's us over here. And so we can look around. We can see this, right? There's still, there, there are divisions of race in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in churches. You, you, can, do this even, you can do this with politics, right? That's probably the most prevalent example in our world. That, 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 that people, even within families, won't talk to each other because things have become more polarized than ever before. Even within the Christian church, right, when we talk about being Christians, what do we often see churches doing? That it's this church against that church. And it's a competition. Instead of being the family of God, wherever the family of God is found and whatever it looks like, what happens is it's this, this group against that group. And what we tend to highlight is the division and not what we share in common. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine. She's not a Christian. And, and her and I have met very, very differing ways of seeing the world. And in our conversation, I had a chance to talk about a number of her experiences with Christians, um, her experiences growing up, and what she heard from Christians, her experience um, with her children, and things Christians have said to her children, to her, to co-workers. And in our conversation about this, what struck me was all the different ways that you could, in a sense, divide up her different experiences. That you, you, could, you could say, all right, there are certain people who, who loved and cared and listened and prayed. But then there were other people who said certain things to her children that it's not, not really a surprise that her children want nothing to do with Jesus if that's what they heard from Christians. And then she described her experience and co-workers' experience and things that maybe family members said uh, about, about Jesus and what God thinks of her and what God was trying to do in that situation. And, and I couldn't help but hear all these examples of her, her interactions with Christians and, and, and can't, couldn't help but think, all right, what, what sticks out to her was the differences. And see, when, when, when we as Christians push towards the divisions, that's what gets highlighted in people's minds. They see the differences, but they don't see Jesus. And, and so in her experience, she, she sees all these differences. In her experience, she sees the divisions, but what she doesn't see, she doesn't see Jesus Christ crucified and risen for her. 
And so in, in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul is going to write these words. Write these words to us that I think in a divided world become so powerful for us. Because what Paul is going to speak to is something that doesn't just naturally happen in our world. People who aren't like other people don't just, don't just come together as one family. That's not what happens in this world. Because if you, if you don't look the way I do or speak the way I do or vote the way I do or think the way I do or struggle with the things I do, that we're not going to get along. But when we look at the church, Paul says something different happens here. And so he writes these words for us. Saying that while the divisions might distract us from the message of Jesus, the work of Jesus does something different. And the reason this is so important for us today. In a divided world, the unity of the church is a better defense. See, we often think about how we defend our faith as Christians. And, and oftentimes it's having the right argument, which is, which is a good thing to understand why we believe what we believe. But I would suggest in our world, because of the, where our world is at, the best apologetic we have is the unity of the church family. I mean, I mean think about it, Th- especially because of technology. Right? No matter who you are talking to, in a matter of seconds, they can find a counter-argument to what you're saying. They can find a reason to not believe what you believe. And the moment then you respond by Googling and finding out what you, how you should respond to what they responded, they can find another response to your response to their response. Right? Because in a matter of moments, if you want to find affirmation of what you believe or why you should believe it, you can in our world. That is not difficult. But what you can't do in our world, you can't reproduce what God does in his church family. And so the best apologetic we got the best defense we got of God's work is when somebody experiences the church family being what God made the family of God to be because you experience this community of people who shouldn't be a part of one family but they are loving and supporting and caring and forgiving and mourning with one another and celebrating with one another being the family of God even when they and every other area of life should be divided from one another and so Paul writes these words about the unity of the church, a unity that doesn't come from us but comes from Jesus. So I'll begin in verse 1. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, right, the calling you've received, here's your identity, right? You are chosen, you are saved, you are heard by God. And so in light of who you are, Not in order to make you that, not in order to make you called by God, but in light of the fact that you are called by God. He says, I want you to live a life that reflects who you are. And so he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Imagine what that would look like in our relationships. Imagine what it would look like for somebody who is an outsider to be invited into that kind of community. A community of gentleness and patience where we bared with one another. So Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, now, now just in case, though, you're reading that and think, all right, now it's all on me to determine whether or not we, we are united, whether or not we are one family, Paul continues and says the very thing that makes you one, though, is not your effort in becoming one. It's actually you are just working towards what God is already doing. 
And so he says, there is one body. Right? You are part of one body. There is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, when Paul asks the question here, who are you? He answers, you are one. You're part of one family. And you worship one God. You have one Lord. There's one baptism. There is one hope. Or you are one. This is what it means to be a part of the family of God. And so in this divided world, what Paul points us to is that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, makes you one. And so when you are baptized, you're not baptized into a particular church or a particular denomination. You're baptized into the family of God. Your baptism was an adoption ceremony where God said, you are my child, you're my son, you are my daughter, and no one can change that. And so now you have this whole family because we've all been made a part of it. When the the Holy Spirit gave you faith, and you heard these words about Jesus when he says your, your sins are forgiven. When you believe those words, that united you to the family of God. And so that no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from, no matter what struggles you have, no matter how bad the sin is that you want to keep hidden from everybody else, the death and resurrection of Jesus unites us to this family. We have one Lord. One faith, one hope. See, the hope isn't in our ability to be better people. Our hope isn't in our ability to get this all right. Our hope is in Jesus and him alone. Which means if we are a family, it means we have a lot in common, even when we have nothing in common. I mean, think about it. Because if you, if you look at, at your own life, right, there are many things that we don't have in common. We come from different families and different backgrounds, different gifts and different abilities. The ways that you have suffered, the pain you've experienced is different than what I've experienced. Yet at the same time, despite the diversity of of situations we come from, we share the same hope. We share the same family because Jesus gives us the same identity. We're all in the same boat. When Paul says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, he's not speaking to to some of us and not others. No, he's speaking to all of us. We all share that in common. When we deal with the reality of, of our own sin, right, we all share that in common. And when Jesus says, I've come to make you alive... Right, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, when, when Jesus says you are now a children of the Heavenly Father, right, that is something we all share in common. And so no matter how different we might be from one another, the hope that we have is the same. Now as Christian missionaries have studied the message of Jesus and specifically how Jesus speaks to different people in different places in different situations... Missiologists have discovered that there are three primary responses to the way that people understand the reality of sin. And these three responses, which are probably familiar with us somewhat, are guilt, shame, and fear. And so depending on the backgrounds that people come from, their their cultural experiences, the families they're raised on, and that people will experience the weight of their sin primarily in one of these three categories. 
Now, all of us will experience it to some extent in differing levels, but certain contexts experience certain ones higher than others. For example, in the West, right, so this is our own context, the primary way that Western people experience the reality of sin is guilt. Because we live in a guilt-innocence-driven culture. Think about it. When somebody does something wrong, what's the mode we tend to operate in? Guilty, not guilty. And if there's guilt, that we want justice. There's a penalty, a price needs to be paid. And so when we talk about the gospel, the work of Jesus, then the response to the guilt is somebody who can respond, somebody who can redeem, somebody who can pay the price. And so, we, and so as we talk about guilt, that becomes the primary way we talk about the work of Jesus. But if you, if you, if you talk to somebody who's, who's in, the, in an Eastern context, not exclusively this is their way of thinking, but primarily the, the mode that they will operate when they think about the reality of their sin is not first guilt, but instead shame. And so what what will happen when they deal with the reality of sin, the first place they go to is not, I have done wrong and therefore deserve punishment. The first thing they'll think of is, I have dishonored my family. And so for them, right, the reality of sin is, is about the shame, what that means to them, what it means to their family. And so the response of Jesus, then when the scriptures say that you've been adopted into the family of God, all right, that's going to resonate with somebody in that context much differently because what is it about then for them? Jesus is restoring honor. He's giving them an identity when their identity has been ripped away because of their own sin. Now, what's interesting, I think, about this is at, in our world, our cultures tend to, our, our, our world's becoming more and more multicultural. And technology has a lot to do with this, too, as, as the distance between different people of different backgrounds, the communication, that, 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 that gap is getting smaller and smaller. I would suggest younger people are going to experience this more and more than generations prior, that you'll find more and more people who resonate more highly with shame and honor than even guilt and innocence than was in previous generations. I mean, think about, think, think about the way that, that our young people experience social media, what, right? What happens? Somebody said something about them. What is it dealing with? Shame and honor. And what, is, what happens? That becomes the way they see themselves. And so the gospel is Jesus saying, you're not what they say you are. I say something different about you. Now in African and tribal cultures, the primary way that they tend to respond to the reality of sin would be fear. And so so the the thing at play in those contexts is fear and power. And so what you'll experience, especially in those cultures, is, is so because of the fear of sin, what will happen is people try to resort to magic and rituals in order to somehow control, right, the consequences and the damage of sin, right? Because there's sin, right, evil is at work. And so if only we can have power and authority and and stop the evil from happening, if only we can rely, rely on these outside sources to somehow intervene, Right, then, we can, then we can solve the problem of sin. And so for those cultures, the, the, the thing that will resonate the most is a God who is greater, is so powerful that he can intervene, that he has dominion and authority over sin, death, the power of the devil. And so when Paul writes these words to the church of Ephesus, and he writes about what we have in common. He is writing about God, about Jesus Christ, who jumps into the midst of any of those experiences that we have with sin and by his death and resurrection deals with all of them. See, in Ephesians 1, Paul actually deals with guilt, shame, and fear. 
In verse 7 he says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Right? That's guilt, innocence, language. In verse 9 he says, we've been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. Later he even says, right, we were foreigners and made citizens. This is shame and honor language, 1921, above all rule and authority, power and dominion. It's, it's fear and power language, which means it doesn't matter what background you come from, what your cultural experience, the word of God speaks to all of it. And so Paul writes these words for us, reminding us that regardless of what makes you undeserving of being in the family, regardless of the guilt that says you shouldn't be a part of this family, regardless of the shame that has caused you to be shunned by the family, or regardless of the fear that you have because of how evil is going to keep you on the outside, Jesus says, I am not going to let that happen. And so Jesus intervenes and invites you in. Which means, for all of us, for all of us, we have the same testimony. Because our testimony now points and witnesses to the work of God. Now, now our stories look different, right? Because when I was dead in my trespasses and sins, when I walked in the ways of the world, that certainly looked different than maybe, maybe you did. And so our stories are different, but the testimony is the same. Because our testimony isn't our own life change. Our testimony is the work of God. It's the power of God to do something that we couldn't. It's the power of God that rescues us. The power of God that saves us. The power of God that chooses us. The power of God to hear us. And so because of that, we are all one big family. That Jesus made you a part of his family. That Jesus forgave you. Jesus forgives you and invites you into his family. And so while we might not all be the same, we might not have the same stories, the same struggles, the same suffering, the same consequences, but we, we all testify to the same grace and mercy of Jesus. And so Paul now writes to us as one church, as one family, as one body, saying, here is what I am doing for you. Verse 7, he says, but to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Paul here is talking about gifts, that God gives gifts to the church. And so God determines how he's going to give those gifts, where he's going to give those gifts, who he's going to give those gifts to. And so he says to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except... He also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now Paul does something interesting here when he talks about Jesus. Because we understand, right, Jesus died, he rose again. And here, what Paul does is he connects the ascension of Jesus to the gifts that God gives to his church. And he does this because there almost can be this sense that, all right, Jesus lived, he lived among the people, and they were going about the mission of God, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. But what's important, and Paul wants to make clear to the church, is when Jesus ascended into heaven, he wasn't leaving the church absent. 
Instead, Jesus said, I will be with you always. And here he points to that Jesus has also gifted the church to continue to do the work, to be about the mission that Jesus was doing as he was teaching and living among the disciples. And so Jesus ascends to heaven but gives his gifts and promises gifts to the church so the work can continue the mission of God. And so Paul then talks about these gifts. What do these gifts look like then for the church, for the family of God? And so verse 11, he says, It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of fullness of Christ. Then we'll be no longer infants, tossed back and forth by the ways, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. See, we are part of the family of God. We're part of one family. And we have been gifted to serve in this family. And so Paul reminds us of that here. Saying that God has given gifts to his church. That God has gifted you. And so the question, who are you? You, you are one and you are gifted. Now, it's interesting here when Paul talks about gifts is he does it a little bit differently than he does it in, in some of the other places of Scripture that he writes. Paul also talks about gifts in the body of Christ in Corinthians, also in Romans. When he does it in those places, Paul is tending to be talking about all believers, specifically that if you are a part of the body of Christ, you have gifts to, to love and serve the family. And that is absolutely the case. If you are a Christian, if you're part of the family, God has uniquely wired you and gifted you to serve the family. Now what Paul also, though, seems to be doing here in these verses is he seems to be talking also about a particular group of people who have been gifted in the family. Specifically, what Paul says in verse 12, people who have been gifted to prepare God's people for works of service. See, Paul here is talking about leaders. That God has gifted some of you in the family to be leaders in the family. Because leaders in the family are those who equip the rest of the family to do what God created them to do. Some of you, God has gifted and called you to equip others in the family to be who God created them to be. Right, right. And, and think about, think about it because, because we can get caught up in all the language that, that Paul's using here. But, but think, th- this, is what, right, this is what leaders do. They equip the family to be who God created the family to be. When I think about my own family as a dad, that is my responsibility as a leader in our house. That I am helping my kids be who God created them to be. And so I help them discover that. I help them have opportunities for that. I help teach them and guide them. And so I don't just tell them the way things have to be, although that might be necessary at times. But I help them discover and and, in time flourish into the kind of people that God wants them to be. 
in my relationship with my wife, right? This is what I do. When I lead her well, I am leading her by helping her become the kind of person that God intended for her to be. To be the mom that God calls her and the, and the kind of mom that she desires to be, right? That's what good leadership does. It's not who does the most or has the most responsibility. Leadership is equipping other people to be who God created them to be. And so if you are part of this family, you are gifted. And some of you, God has gifted you to lead others in the family. And some of you already know that. Some of you are serving, leading kids and teenagers as small group leaders. Some of you are leading in, in groups of elders or councils. Some of you are leading Bible studies. Some of you are, are serving with, with teams in, in the lobby. Some of you are serving, leading events and programs. Right? And so, so some of you understand this, right? You've been gifted, and you're using your gifts in a way that help those in the family become who God created them to be. It helps them flourish and discover and use their gifts. And maybe others of you have a sense that maybe there is this gifting, and, that, and, you, and you feel that, all right, maybe God's doing something and calling you to something. But you're not yet leading others to become who God wants them to be. And, and if that's you... Let us know. Because we want to lead you. As you lead others to become who God created them to be, we want to help you become who God created you to be. See, God gifts us as his church and gives us gifts as the church to love and serve one another. See, we are united, but we aren't uniform. We are united by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but my gifts aren't your gifts and my talents aren't your talents. God gives us a diversity of gifts so that we together can be about the mission of God. If we all had the same gifts and the same passion and the same personalities, we could not do the mission that God calls us to do. It requires a diversity of gifts to do what God called us to do. And so God unites us together as one family and sends us out with a variety of gifts to do the work he's prepared in advance for us to do. And so notice then why Paul says that he's given these gifts to the church. Verse 12 says, So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith. Right, Paul circles back now, to back to unity. Right, so, so, so we're in gifting, but he says we, he's given these gifts to unite the family. So, so that we would use these gifts to bring the family together, to build those relationships, to build those connections, to build bridges between people, to help the family belong, to help the family unite in their confession, in their belief, in their faith. And then in verse 14 he says, Then we will no longer be infants. We'll grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. So we are gifted to unite and mature the body. So God gifts us as his church. He unites us to the family. And he gifts us so that we grow in our unity together and we become more and more like Jesus who is our head. 
And Jesus as the head is what holds us all together. And Jesus as the head is what gives life to the body. That we don't have life independent of Jesus. But it's the life of him who is the head. His blood flows through our veins. And so it's in him that we live and move and have our being. Because it's Christ who is the head. Who holds us together and now gifts us to work together for the mission that he has sent us on. God has united you to this family, to his family, and he has gifted you to serve in it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for the gifts that you give to us, that you unite us to this family, that by your death and resurrection, that no sin, no struggle, no gifts or abilities, that none of those determine whether or not We are in the family. We thank you that you deal with guilt and shame and fear. That by your blood you say we aren't guilty. That by your own death and resurrection that you say we are a part of the family. That by your own authority that you have power over sin, death, and the devil. And so Jesus, we thank you that you unite us to this one family and we pray that as a part of that this family that we work for the unity that you've called us to that we live a life worthy of the calling and that we use the gifts that we have to unite and to mature this family to grow this family to become more and more like you you who are the head, who lead us and give life to us. In your name we pray. Amen.